Welcome to the weekly edition of ESG Now, where we cover how the environment, our society, and corporate governance affects and are affected by our economy. I'm your host, Mike DiCibato, and this week we are going to talk about incentives. Incentive to cure things. Incentives to vote people off boards. First, we are going to talk about the incentive around a vaccine for COVID because it's been announced that Moderna, a U.S. drug manufacturer, has a COVID vaccine which has shown early results. And then we are going to talk about the incentive for Glass-Lewis, a major proxy advisor, to urge investors to remove former ExxonMobil boss Lee Raymond from J.P. Morgan's board. Thanks as always for joining us. I know you didn't need any incentive for that. And stay tuned. Eight people have received two doses of an experimental vaccine developed by Moderna for COVID and the results have been promising. Now the company will move on to the second phase of testing around 600 people after getting the go-ahead from the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. And then if all goes well, a third phase will happen in July involving thousands of people. And Moderna isn't alone. Dozens of companies and universities are rushing to create coronavirus vaccines, including Pfizer, Gazlo Smith-Klein, Johnson & Johnson, Sanofi, and Shanghai Fusun Pharma, and then obviously the University of Oxford is looking into it. But only two of the 44 COVID-19 vaccine candidates globally have been successful in getting human trials. Those developed by Casino Biological, Beijing Institute of Biotechnology, and Moderna. And even if one of these groups gets a working vaccine on the market, there's still a long way to go before it gets into my body and a lot of anxiety that goes with it. There is the fear that scaling up production could subvert necessary quality controls and assurance mechanisms that a vaccine, which isn't like a treatment and that you give a treatment to someone who is sick while a vaccine is given to a healthy patient, could go terribly wrong and there could be litigation against the company that developed the vaccine. So you need a robust checkup system to ensure there aren't adverse side effects post-treatment. And there's also this issue that is an ESG issue of the access to the vaccine. When a company creates a drug, they usually like to keep it for themselves and, you know, sell it for money, unless it's for a disease that is considered a global public health concern. In 2001, a hard-fought battle over AIDS drugs led the World Trade Organization's Doha Declaration on Trade-Related Intellectual Property, aka TRIPS, that allowed governments to use compulsory licenses to ignore intellectual property for drugs that are considered essential medicines, like the ones for HIV, tuberculosis, and malaria. My guest today, Julia Jaguer, has written about all this and has been studying infectious diseases even before her time at MSCI ESG Research. And Julia, first, could you take me through all the groups that are currently involved in researching a cure to COVID-19? You have numerous different players kind of galvanizing around COVID, right? They're accelerating R&D efforts. So you have academia, you have companies, so private companies investing, you have governments, then you also have a fourth component, which is public-private partnerships. And all of these vehicles are incentivized in different ways, right? So uh, if you have a company, when you're developing a vaccine, generally the rates of return are low, right? And it's unpredictable. So it's very risky. Um, so that's why you generally have seen a shift of companies away from 
vaccines uh, because they can't recoup their costs, but also because they're not as profitable as perhaps other rare diseases and chronic diseases. With COVID, it's a situation where, you know, all this money is being thrown out of it. And there's all these different incentive mechanisms to spur R&D. And then a lot of times when you have a drug or a vaccine, there is a component of the company taking on the scaling and production, but it might have originated with academia or um, it might have been funded by a government entity. Um, So there are all sorts of partnerships that you are generally kind of breaking down in this sphere. Right. And these companies are working in parallel. I think I mistakenly think that they are working together, but it's actually, you know, they're working against each other. They're trying to figure this out before someone else. Whoever does figure it out, figure it out is going to have a reputational boost. Um, they're obviously going to have a funding boost. And so how, how do you address that when you have a company that's working toward a public good, but it's in a business environment and they're going to be making a profit from that? How does that affect things like access to healthcare, which is something we look at? Well, I don't think that they need to be mutually exclusive, right? A company can make, a, make money off of a drug that, you know, that is hugely beneficial to the population. The question is just of the access and also whether it's affordable. And that affordability, those affordability levels differ within different populations across different countries, obviously. There's stark, stark differences there. Um, So in a market like the U.S., which is generally, you know, you can really price things quite expensively because of the structure of the U.S. market um, and the lack of, you know, the lack of real kind of like price caps, you will price it highly. But then when you look at countries like Lesotho, you will put it at a very, very different pricing point. So that's where the ESG perspective comes in. And that's also where patents come in as well, because a lot of times in a situation like this, it depends what happens with the patents, um, whether companies can, whether companies will bypass patents, whether they will give licenses to generic manufacturers to produce you know, products that people need, such as COVID for, for COVID-19. What, what do you mean give licenses to manufacturers? Because I don't understand that. Explain that to me. So, yeah. So, so just to, just to clarify quickly, um, you know, I think when you, when you look at a pharmaceutical product, it has a patent life, right? From, from the time that you file, file for the patent. And then that is usually 20 years. What generally happens in times of, you know, crisis, whether it's if you look back at HIV or um, products where there may not be so much of a commercial opportunity, is that companies will grant, um, and this is not a requirement, this is completely a voluntary, um, you know, access to healthcare ESG issue, they will grant what's called non-exclusive voluntary licenses to generic manufacturers. And what that means is that they are providing the generic manufacturer the legal, you know, right to essentially bypass their patent to be able to produce this drug. And what happens is when you have multiple generic manufacturers producing one drug, generally the price of that drug or vaccine or whatever it might be will drastically reduce because of competition. Gilead is is doing this right now with remdesivir. So it's it's producing, it's um, allowing five generic manufacturers to produce remdesivir. Remdesivir being an antiviral drug that Gilead has that was initially 
used for treatment for Ebola, but now has shown to help block the spread of COVID-19 in patient lungs. And giving generic drug manufacturers permission to make your drug, it, it helps with distribution. If society had to rely on one company's manufacturing capability, then it might be a while before a vital drug was disseminated. And I kind of want to keep with Gilead because there's this interesting case with them um, because it's been on the front line of the COVID pandemic, sometimes for great stuff such as the uh, remdesivir, but also sometimes for not such great stuff like when it tried to claim its COVID drugs were under orphan drug status. And basically orphan drug status is an incentive structure in the U.S., where the company can get a seven-year window of tax reductions, but it also gives the company exclusive rights to develop a cure for the specific condition, which would not have been good during COVID. Julia, what happened with Gilead trying to claim orphan drug status? Mm-hmm. So, so they uh, so they applied for orphan drug status, which uh, means really just um, it's generally reserved for rare diseases, um, you know, that afflict uh, less than 200,000 people in the U.S. I think, you know, their argument was that, you know, that it's still at the point at which they applied for orphan drug status that based on the number of test cases that it still held. I mean, obviously, there was quite a bit of pressure and, and lashback on that. And then two days later, they rescinded that. Um, and, you know, clearly probably not the best move. But that being said, you know, Gilead has been a clear leader um, for a long time in terms of access. They um, they do some really unique things. So first of all, they're they're really a leader in terms of non-exclusive voluntary li- licensing with their HIV products. Um, very few companies actually do this, and it's one of the most powerful mechanism. Again, it bypasses patents, so allowing generic manufacturers to produce their products. They've also licensed to the medicine patent pool in terms of um, some of their really powerful Hep C um, and HIV drugs. And they're one of the only, one of the very few companies that also um, have expanded the scope of their licensing agreements to countries that are slightly wealthier. Uh, a lot of a lot of companies will only extend their licensing to the poorest of the poor, but Gilead has gone a step further and expanded the licensing scope um, of, of some of its um, HIV products and, and Hep C products to these slightly wealthier countries to, to ensure affordability and access. Right, and I actually, I actually want to quote something from a report you wrote in March about the biopharma industry that I wrote down. Epidemics pose a unique dilemma for the biopharmaceutical industry, particularly for vaccine developers, as investments tend to decline when the pandemic subsides. During the Ebola crisis, GSK invested for several years in three vaccines, yet eventually handed over the Ebola candidate as clinical trial progress slowed with the number of Ebola cases subsiding. So to me, they did all this effort and it didn't come to fruit. And it sounds like a market disconnect. It feels like how climate change is a market disconnect, where companies either don't have the will or the incentive structure to address a problem that we all know is coming eventually, and we all know will wreak havoc on our lives. Do you see that? Am I making a right connection there? Do you see these two as being connected as well, climate change and COVID? Um, so yes, uh, now with COVID, because it is an emergency response it is a, it is an emergency and it's a pandemic it's 
it's rejigging that system. Um, so that is potentially where over the long term from an ESG perspective and when we think about any types of trends accelerating, things like drug pricing and access and affordability would potentially, it could, COVID could potentially be a tipping point to rejig that system in a way that would make, um, that would bring things like access um, and those incentive mechanisms to the forefront. Before I let you go, um, is there anything else that COVID is really disrupting right now in the medical industry? There's been a lot of stories about elective procedures now having to be foregone, which is actually putting a lot of stress on uh, the healthcare industry that relied on those elective procedures as their money makers. Is anything else changing now that would be kind of under the radar? I mean, the other complicated part of this is that, um, ironically, the amount, the number of vaccinations are going down right now because people aren't getting vaccinated. And this was like disturbing me as I was sleeping yesterday <laughs> uh, because it's just so ironic that we're looking for a vaccine um, for COVID, yet we are just missing vaccines in general. 13.5 million doses of vaccines are being missed right now, according to Gavi, which is the Vaccine Alliance. Alliance. What do you mean uh, being missed? Their people are staying home. They're not getting vaccinated. Oh. They're not going to the doctor. And I was just thinking about this in the context of my own one-year-old because he has been missing his... I have, I have on purpose been delaying his vaccine vaccinations and then I was like oh my god I'm one of those people I mean he has them in June I, I rescheduled them but we are getting this massive like there is a massive amount of vaccines that are being missed while we are looking for a vaccine for COVID And now I have with me Alan Brett, who covers company governance for us at MSCI ESG Research, because proxy advisor Glass Lewis, that gives shareholders advice on how they should vote their proxies at shareholder meetings, has urged investors to oust ExxonMobil boss and infamous climate denier Lee Raymond from J.P. Morgan's board. Because the problem is, Glass Lewis said, Raymond is 81 years old and J.P. Morgan's board retirement age is 72. And J.P. Morgan just announced the results. And so, Alan, what happened? Um, so, so in the end, the, the vote wasn't close. Uh, it was a bit of a rebuke. Um, I think around about 84% of shareholders who voted supported his re-election. Uh, so he did get the lowest vote in favor. Um, I think uh, the issues probably extend beyond his track record for previous role at Exxon and obviously as an oil major may have played an influence. But, you know, he has been around on the board for a very long time. Um, and, you know, Jamie Dimon, uh, the, the chair and CEO, has been in office for 16 years. And four of the board members have served at least that length of time, apart from Dimon. And right, so he, Lee Raymond, has put in a lot of influential people that are still on the board today because he's been on the board for 19 years himself. Um, but where was the action in this vote if it wasn't with the possible ousting of Raymond? Yeah, it was actually it was actually on two shareholder proposals. Uh, one of them goes back to this issue around Diamond and his uh, his his powerful position as both chairman and CEO. 
um, which has been, you know, you know, there are two separate roles. The chairman should really be overseeing, you know, the the, the, the performance of the, of the CEO. And I think there's been uh, 42% of shareholders uh, supported the shareholder proposal to separate those positions. The biggest uh, support for the shareholder proposal side was on um, uh, climate risk reporting. Uh, there was a proposal from As You Sow um, on behalf of uh, some U.S. shareholders who who requested, um, you know, some reporting on on how the banks are playing a role in in meeting the Paris Agreement's goals uh, on limiting uh, global warming. Uh, there were other proposals on environmental issues as well at this uh, particular AGM. So it, it looks like that was the the hot topic here. Really? So do you think that that's going to be kind of a theme this year? There's going to be more resolutions that are passed on climate? Yeah, I, have, well, I, haven't, I haven't tallied the numbers, but, you know, from anecdotally, we're, we're seeing them in, in quite a number of companies and, and support. And I think compared to other years, it's what's striking so far in the vote results that we have seen is the, is the high level of support that some of these have achieved. Um, and in some cases, uh, companies have have gone further and they've put forward management proposals uh, to kind of rebuke, not not necessarily to rebuke, but to take some of the heat off themselves. Um, you know, Barclays passed a, a, a proposal around climate um, in in the face of a, a separate competing proposal, which would have been a bit more um, demanding on them. Um, that was that had been filed from shareholders. So uh, it, the banking sector has certainly been targeted with some of these proposals this year in in light of their financing uh, uh, of of businesses that maybe are contributing to climate change. And that's it for the week. I wanted to thank Julia and Alan for joining me to discuss this week's news with an ESG twist. I wanted to thank you so much for listening. If you liked what you heard, don't forget to rate and review us. It really helps us out, especially because I'm just sitting down trying to figure out how to be better in these depressing, painful times. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks as always for listening to us. Talk to you next week. The MSCI ESG Research Podcast is provided by MSCI Inc.'s subsidiary, MSCI ESG Research LLC, a registered investment advisor under the Investment Advisors Act of 1940. And this recording and data mentioned herein has not been submitted to nor received approval from the United States Securities and Exchange Commission or any other regulatory body. The analysis discussed should not be taken as an indication or guarantee of any future performance, analysis, forecast, or prediction. The information contained in this recording is not for reproduction in whole or in part without prior written permission from MSCI ESG Research. None of the discussion or analysis put forth in this recording constitutes an offer to buy or sell or a promotion or recommendation of any security, financial instrument, or product or trading strategy. Further, none of the information is intended to constitute investment advice or recommendation to make or refrain from making any kind of investment decision and may not be relied on as such. The information provided here is as is, and the user of the information assumes the entire risk of any use it may make or permit to be made of the information. Thank you.